Okay, well, thanks for uh, coming to our Easter service. Uh, that's a wrap. That concludes. No, I mean, that was amazing. Uh, the video, the choir. By the way, I said that exact same joke, second service, exact same response. Um, so thank you. Thank you. At least I'm consistent. Uh, but uh, happy Easter, everyone. It's great to see everyone in overflow room. I know it's uh, packed in there. Just want to say hi to you. Happy Easter. Okay, uh, we didn't hear you at all, but we, we love you in there as well. But it's so great to see everyone here. Uh, you all look beautiful and amazing. The planning team told me to say that publicly, but it's awesome to see you guys. Whether this is your first time at our church or first time at church period, or whether you come here every single Sunday, it's amazing and fantastic that we can gather here to celebrate Easter. If you could actually uh, take your Bibles or your phone, and if you could turn with me to John, the, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 20, and as you turn there, I do want to share a quick story. Uh, I don't know if you uh, read the paper, but actually there was a story that came out about two weeks ago about a, a, a Michigan man named Jeff. Uh, and Jeff, uh, he's had a rough 2019 so far. I mean, it's only been about four months into, the, into 2019, into the new year. But earlier in this year, he had a massive heart attack and he actually almost nearly died uh, three times. But after that, uh, he then went on to go and lose the winning lottery ticket. So if you're, if you're here this morning and you're like, I've had a rough 2019, not as bad as Jeff's. All right, that's a rough start to the new year. But there would be a singular event, one event that would change everything. And in fact, it would completely alter his reality from the old one to a brand new one. And it was this, it was he found the lottery ticket of all places in the trash can, of course. And he found it and now he has his health to boot. And so what a remarkable change of events. He had an old reality, but because of a singular event, he now has a new reality where he has a cool story to tell and having $25,000 a year every year, that, that helps, right? Now I share this because just like how for Jeff, one singular event completely altered his reality, I actually believe that we gather here on Easter Sunday to celebrate in the same way a singular event that takes us from an old reality to a new reality that God intends and desires for us. Um, in fact, Easter changes everything. And without Easter, without this singular event, we would just be stuck with an old reality. Because, hey, let's be honest, you know, we're all here this morning. We look wonderful and beautiful and we wore our Sunday best. Again, the planning team told me to say this publicly. Uh, it looks wonderful, but if we're honest, if we opened up the hood of our lives a little bit, the deeper realities of our lives would actually show that there's some pain in our lives. And there's, there's disappointment, there is loss, there is grief. In fact, if we're honest here this morning, deep down in our bones, into the, the deeper parts of our lives, there is this brokenness that we feel, no matter how much we try to doll ourselves up or all the, you know, I'm doing fine phrases that we say, deep down in our hearts, we can feel the brokenness and the sinfulness and the limitation on the inside. And that brokenness is only matched by the external brokenness we see in the world when we see, you know, human uh, violence, or this week, Northern Cathedral, fire. There's something in our hearts that says, this is not what the world should be like. This is not what reality should be like. We were made for something more. Why is the world like this? And my contention this morning is that without the singular event of the resurrection, we would just be left to cope and deal with the loss of these disappointing realities. 
In fact, I think that's what we see this morning uh, in, our st- in the story that we're going to get into. It's actually a hilarious story, and we're going to get into that a little bit. But we see different characters who wake up to what they believe is a resurrectionless reality. As far as they're concerned, there is no resurrection. There is no singular event that changes everything. And what's fascinating is we get to see how they cope with a resurrectionless reality. And we'll be surprised to see how much that resembles maybe how we cope with some of the realities of our lives. So if you can take your Bibles, again, or your phone app, turn with me to John chapter 20. I'll be reading from verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, she came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So Mary Magdalene, she ran, uh, she ran and went to Simon Peter and, you know, the other disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were uh, going toward the tomb. Verse four, now both of them were running together, but the one Uh, The other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter caught up, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, uh, which had been on Jesus' face ahead, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. The disciples, they went back to their homes. Verse 11, but Mary, she stood weeping outside the tomb and she wept as she stooped to look into the tomb. So this is a little story about people having a get-together at the cemetery, uh, racing to see who could get there first, and then publicly, loudly crying, uh, what in the world is going on here? Well, what we see here is uh, people actually trying to cope with what they believe is a resurrectionless reality. So to understand what's going on here, we actually have to rewind the story a little bit because for these disciples, for the last three and a half years, they had followed this man, not on Twitter, not on Instagram, but uh, in real life by putting everything, all their entire life into him, uh, someone, a Jesus of Nazareth. And they followed him mistakenly believing and understanding that he was merely a social, political, economic liberator. And so what they thought was, hey, if Jesus just keeps doing his thing and we kind of attach our wagon to Jesus, there's going to be a financial political payoff at the other end. That's what they thought mistakenly. But three days prior, when the religious leaders had nailed Jesus to the cross and they watched him die, uh, their first century Palestinian dreams completely came crashing down. And not only were their dreams broken, now they were faced with a real nightmare of what life could be like in a resurrectionless uh, reality. And what we find here and what's fascinating is how these disciples cope with this resurrection reality Uh, uh, unresurrected reality in different ways. For example, did you notice the way that Mary Magdalene copes with the realities? What does she do? She copes by pursuing the noble and honorable path. You see, uh, Mary, she's she's fascinating because she grew up in a kind of well-to-do environment, but she had her own demons. And I mean like figuratively and literally, Jesus cast out seven from her. And so she loved Jesus. 
She, owed, she felt like she owed a lot to Jesus. She, she followed Jesus. She respected him. But when Jesus died and all her dreams for Jesus and of Jesus and her life came crashing down, what we find is her pursuing such a noble path. You see, in the first century, according to Jewish custom, uh, how families would celebrate, even the poorest Jewish families would celebrate and honor someone's death by hiring a a few flute, I don't know if this is how you play flute. They would hire a few flute players and they would hire some woman to lament and grieve publicly and loudly. But it was almost as if Mary Magdalene knew that maybe Jesus' family was so poor that they could not afford uh, these mourners. And so she, with great courage, knowing how tense the social environment around Jesus and his story may have been at this point, courageously and presumably as one of the first ones runs to the tomb with a few others to give Jesus proper burial preparations and to mourn the loss. This is incredibly noble and honorable and courageous. And this is Mary Magdalene's path. But to her surprise, she shows up at the tomb and there is no body of Jesus. And she did not anticipate a resurrection of Jesus. And so to her uh, surprise and dismay, Seeing that he is not there, she then pursues the next courageous, noble, and honorable path by going and talking to the people that Jesus was closest to, uh, who would have been hunted down at this point by the very religious leaders who, who had put Jesus to death, the disciples. And so she runs over to where they are, hiding, cowering in fear, and she says, they've taken away his body, we don't know where it is. And the disciples, Peter and John, it's fascinating because they react so differently from Mary. If Mary Magdalene responded by saying, I'm going to look internally, what's the right thing to do? Peter and John do not look within to ask themselves what the right thing to do is. They do not react to noble and honorable path. Instead, they say, they look at each other and they say, you ready? Oh yeah, I'm ready. Let's race. First one to the tomb, rotten Easter egg, pun intended. Go! And so they actually have a, com- uh, the re- reaction second service was exact. So again, the consistency is palpable. It is amazing. Um, and so they race to the tomb. And did you notice when I read the story, the story almost goes out of its way to demonstrate how much they're jostling in competition. You notice that, right? The, the, uh, the story reads like, John's like, you know, it's me, the one that Jesus loved. What a great self-proclaimed nickname, the one that Jesus loved. And you know, I, I'm the holy spiritual one. And you know, we got to the tomb, we raced to the tomb. And of course I won because Peter's a little chubby. You know, I've been working out doing, you know, CrossFit. And so I got there first, but it's okay because I was humble. I waited for Peter to catch up. He was completely out of breath. And I waited for him humbly. And then Peter stooped in and he had no idea what was going on. I looked and well, I believed because you know, I'm the one that Jesus loved. And I won the race, by the way. What in the world is going on here? Why this jostling? Why this competition? Here's why. Because in a resurrectionless reality, we either cope with the brokenness and fallenness of life by either pursuing the noble and honorable path, or we just try to win at life. Because there's no other scoreboard. These disciples had put in all, they went all in on Jesus' life. And so when Jesus died, as far as they're they're concerned, their life had also died. And so in their hearts and minds, they thought, you know what? I'm going to get this little victory, as petty as it may be. And so John, after winning, records on his version of Insta story that he won. By the way, it's kind of haunting how much the way that they cope with an unresurrection reality mirrors 
the way that we often cope with life. Isn't that true? Like, you know, some of us here this morning, uh, as you experience the brokenness of life, as you feel your own sinfulness, your path to how to cope with everything is actually you're, you're, you're pursuing the noble and honorable path. I mean, your mentality is it's all going to be okay, even though everything's not okay. It's all going to be okay as long as I do the okay thing. And so, I mean, you, you always do the, the, the your, you drive within the lanes. You always, you know, speed limit, don't text too much when you drive, a little bit is okay. Uh, I'm gonna pay my taxes and I'm gonna work hard and make sacrifices. You, you use phrases like no pain, no gain. Sacrifice always pays off. If life gives you lemon, sell it, I, I, you know, whatever, right? Make lemonade. And, and you work so hard because nothing else has, you, we can't have control over anything else in the world, but we just know I, I can control me pursuing nobility and, and soothe, soothe the worry soothe the anxiety in my life. And how we know we're pursuing this is sometimes we look at people around us who we feel like are not good citizens, are not as noble and honorable. And what we feel in our hearts is anger and judgmentalism towards them. We go, what is wrong with that person? And then we feel bad and guilty for feeling that way. And so we'll soothe that by doing more honorable and noble things. That's why you're here. That's why some of us are here this morning. You're like, well, it's Easter. What is Easter about? Eggs, bunnies. Well, I mean, we got to go to church. Got to do the noble thing. Others were like, I'm here every Sunday. That's how noble and honorable I am. And that's how some of us cope with our broken realities. Now, others of us in this room, you are disgusted right now. You're like, nobility, honor. I want victory. Because, you know, for some of us, you have a much more pragmatic view of life, right? Like, this is what you, you, right now you think, hey, buddy, I know you're not that old, so hear me closely. This is a cold, cold world. And so you better put your big boy pants on pack a, a cold sack lunch and get to work because that's all life is. And so some of us, we just try to win at life. I mean, in your career, you're gunning it. You're happy to step over people. Others of us, we just beautify ourselves and our little Instagrams and right, we take forever to get the right angle. It's totally untrue. I mean, you're like sweating. You have to wipe off the sweat, right? Uh, and we're counting followers and others. We just try to win by beautifying our children and say, look, I'm gonna win through them. And so what happens with life is it's this constant competition. We're measuring to the person right and to the left all the time. Like how many followers do you have? How many likes do you have? Where do you live? What's the square footage? What's your job? How much do you get paid? What's your score on fantasy? Do you golf? You know, what stroller do you have? Do you have this compartment? You know, how much do you lift? Do you even lift, bro? <laughs> that one always gets laughter for some reason. It's just, I don't know. And so for some of us, the, the coping mechanism is actually like, this is all we have and this is all I'm gonna pursue. I'm just gonna win at life because in the end, all that matters is the one with the most toys wins. And it's amazing that this morning, even 2,000 years later, we often find ourselves coping as if there is a non-resurrection reality just like the disciples in the text. But here's the sad thing. All of this, all of our coping mechanisms, it is just a temporary band-aid, isn't it? Because Mary, she pursued the noble path, but in the end, she still lifted her voice to weep. It did not deal with the pain. The disciples, oh, they raced. John won, as he clearly let us know. But in the end, he still left confused, unsure, uncertain. 
And in the same way, many of us, we are trying hard, but if we're honest, it doesn't deal with, our efforts do not deal with the brokenness of our realities. We are still left hurting and anxious and uncertain. And so what they need in the story and what we need in our lives is we need an external reality that collides and breaks into our reality so that it changes forever. And I believe that's what happens in the story for them and therefore for us as well. Look with me in verse 12. And Mary, she saw two angels in white. She had no idea. uh, Sitting uh, where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And so the angels, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord Jesus and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Jesus to be the gardener, Mary said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And so Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And so here's, what we have. here's the, the singular event that we see occurring, which changes their realities and therefore ours forever, which is this, Jesus rose from the dead. Can I hear an amen on that one? He rose from the dead. Uh, the grave could not contain him. Uh, his life was resurrected by the power of God. And here he is greeting Mary Magdalene. And so her life, her reality will never be the same again. Now, I'm going to share with us now just how precisely our realities are altered forever by the resurrection. But there's something I need to really quickly address first. But before I address that quickly, I need to take a breath so that I don't pass out on stage. Okay. See, there's someone sitting here. Thank you for allowing me to breathe. I really, I was, it was starting to get black. Uh, there's someone in here, um, and you're, you're saying, um, you know, this is all, did you guys all hear just what the preacher just said? Like he just said some guy rose from the dead and we're just all sitting here quietly nodding as if this is all okay. I know that they're gonna serve free tri-tip at the end of the service, but are we just really gonna pretend? Like this guy just didn't say that someone rose from the dead. And yes, there will be chicken as well. <laughs> and there might be someone sitting here and, and, and you're, you might have grown up in the church and deep down inside, you have a little bit of skepticism. Or maybe you're sitting here and you, you've just, you're like, this is why I have a hard time because someone gets on the stage and is really excited about these miraculous events and it's like, really? Are you serious? And I think that's wonderful because we should be using our brains. We should be using our minds. And so just a quick detour. I just want to give a quick, quick reason. I don't have time to fully get into it. Why I believe we have good reason to believe in in the validity of the resurrection. Uh, And I'll do this by way of illustration. Imagine for a moment that you were hiring uh, someone for your company. And imagine that uh, 10 resumes were sent to your office in your email box. And what you found was that nine of the resumes, they looked pristine. I mean, you would think this is, this human is perfect. I mean, their work experience, their everything, their strengths, I mean, they have no flaws, right? Uh, But here's what you would do. Being a wise boss, you would then take every single one of those perfect resumes, you would call their current employer 
and you would say, hey, uh, so I just wanted to verify, uh, you know, they said that they're a total team player, are they really a team player? And they would say, oh, the most selfish person on the team. And the reason why you would do this is because you would want to make sure that the internal evidence of the writing in the resume actually matches their history, their actual real life walking on the earth history. And you, you want to compare, is there symmetry? And if there is no symmetry because you know, they're really selfish in real life, what you would conclude is, even if I want to hire this person, I don't know if I have good reason to hire this person because I don't know what else they're lying about. But now, you look at the 10th resume. Now, this resume looks very different. I, I mean, they do share their strengths and their victories and all the good news and so forth. But this resume, it also talks about their weaknesses. And in fact, one of their projects, they failed on something and they include that in the resume. And you're like, I know this person is qualified, but they also share their weaknesses. And so you call their current employer and their employer is like, oh my gosh, everything is totally accurate. The person is awesome. Now they're not perfect. They're not, in fact, let me tell you uh, uh, the examples in which they failed. And you're like, well, that matches the internal evidence of the writings and the resume, but here are the victors. And you're like, well, that matches uh, the internal evidence of the resume. And what you would have to conclude is that they were telling the truth, that there was symmetry. And so at the end, even if you did not want to hire that person, you would have to conclude that you have good reason to hire that person. Now, here's why I share this. Uh, scholars, when they look at the Gospel of John, they talk about something that's known as the internal evidence of the writing. And what's interesting is that if you, and this is the part where you can laugh, so you, just, you can lower your shoulder, it's okay to laugh at church. Uh, the internal, thank you, some, some of us are already practicing, you're getting a couple of giggles out, it's good. Uh, scholars say that some of the internal evidence in the Gospel of John is so ridiculous, it must be not untrue. Sorry for the double, triple negatives. Like it's so ridiculous, it only makes sense if it's true. Because for example, like John wrote, he wrote John. You notice the way that he talks about himself? He's like, yeah, I'm the one Jesus loved, but I'm just gonna be honest with you guys. Like I had no idea that Jesus was gonna rise from the dead. I know like I wrote that he said he was gonna rise from the dead. I had no clue that he was gonna rise from the dead. Um, by the way, I won the race. Just give me credit for that. And but he doesn't even sound intelligent, right? He's like, hey guys, you know, like the, 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 the tomb, like there were these linen cloths, they were folded really nicely. So I don't know if it, if it could have been grave robbers because you know, if robbers like steal a body, I don't think they would take time to like neatly fold and, and you know, put like, I, I don't think they would. Yeah, thanks for that, Captain Obvious. Really appreciate that. I mean, even uh, who's the first eyewitness in the text, in the writing? It's a woman, it's Mary Magdalene. Now, I have a daughter. My wife, she's the doctor. I am all for woman power. But I'm just saying in the first century, in the first century, in the first century, if you wanted to start a movement, having a woman as your first and main spokesperson would have literally been the worst strategy to launch a movement in an environment where women's testimonies were not even taken seriously in the court of law. And but Jesus, look at, you see Jesus? He doesn't, even, he doesn't even look like the risen God. He looks like a prankster showing up on the scenes, right? He's like, hey guys, sh- 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 she has no clue. Watch this. Mm-mm. Woman, why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Well, who do you, th- why do you think she's crying, Jesus? Why do you, th- who do you think she's looking for? He just looks like, he's like, I know, I know. Watch this, watch this. Mary, teacher, you did it again. I mean, It's so ridiculous, it only makes sense if it really happened. 
But then you look at the internal evidence of the writings, and then you compare that with the early history accounts of the Christian faith, how a small minority sect of peasants and fishermen launched the, one of the greatest movements in human history under, under the reign of the mighty Roman Empire, and these very cowards like Peter and John suddenly turned courageous, preaching the message of Jesus. John himself watched all of his fellow apostles become martyred and die brutally for the faith. In fact, he watched Peter be crucified upside down. And he himself, later in his life, was boiled alive and then lived to prove he beat, John, he beat Peter. He's like, I won the race and I got boiled alive and lived. I won. For what? A lie? No. These men were convinced. John says in one of his other writings, like, you know, I, I touched him. I saw him. I talked to him. I had breakfast with him. We saw him ascend into heaven. And so the, the internal evidence of the writings plus the, the, the historical accounts, there appear to be symmetry so that even if you don't want to believe in the resurrection, I'm just saying you have good reason to believe in the resurrection. If you say this morning, you have to prove how could someone rise from the dead? You would also have to prove if the resurrection did not happen, how did the Christian faith and movement explode in an unexplainable way? in the first century. I'm just saying we have good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And because he did, that changes everything. It changed their reality and it changes ours too. Look at our final verse in verse 17. Here's what Jesus says to Mary. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers, the disciples, and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Do you notice what Jesus said there? Not about the part where he needs uh, personal space, uh, but the part where he says, hey, I want you to go to uh, the disciples who are living in a non-resurrected reality. They're disappointed. They're coping with the harsh realities of life. And here's what I want you to tell them. Tell them, you know how I continually reveal what the Father, God, was like through my life? Tell them now, because I've resurrected from the dead, tell them that my Father is now their Father. Meaning, because of the resurrection, those who place their trust in Jesus, they now have the, the privilege of sharing in sonship, in daughtership, so that just like how Jesus could say, I am the son of God, you have no idea how much my father loves me. You and I are brought into adoption so that you and I can say just like how God loved Jesus. Now, my father loves me just like that. My father loves me just like how much he loved Jesus. The resurrection is where Jesus, where the, where the Father signs the adoption papers for us. See, Good Friday, when we celebrated the death of Christ, the, the, you know what the legal document that was dealt with? It, it dealt with our sins. But resurrection, you know what's the legal document it, it, it deals with? Our spiritual adoption. See, you and I, we, we were created to have a relationship with God, to flourish in this world in relationship with God. But when we said no to God, when we turned away from him or when we sinned, this world broke 
we ourselves broke, but something deeper broke, and that was our relationship with God the Father. But God, rather than allowing us to remain in an estranged relationship with God, he sent his son, Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus our elder brother, our older brother. And our older brother is able to bring us back into relationship with the father. He's able to accomplish adoption for us. How? Because of his death, where he achieved the life that you and I, no matter how hard we try, could never achieve. No moral standing. We can't do it. But then he died the death that you and I should have been punished for on account of our sins because God is good and holy. But when he rose from the dead, it was his declaration. I bring us now back to the Father to have relationship with him. Just like how God designed it at the beginning. Do you see the little Easter egg, uh, pun intended, in the text? You know, when Mary, she, she thought Jesus was a gardener. Of course she thinks he's a gardener because Jesus brings us back to the garden where we had relationship with God in perfection. He was our father. Did you know that in the gospel of John, Jesus, when he talks about the father, he always talks about in, in first, like he's my father, he's the father. But after the resurrection, for the first time, he says, your father. Easter brings us home to God the father. That's why, that's why we can say happy Easter because the father wants to adopt us and take us in as his own so that you and I can become children of God. Now I realize uh, some of us who have not grown up in the church or some of us who have grown up in the church and so we've just received too much information. Sometimes uh, this feels a little abstract and it feels hard to, to experience this. It's hard to see how much this changes our reality. And so, uh, you know, our church media team, they put together a little video of a few kids who react to the adoption papers being signed uh, of them. And we get to see their reaction and how much their reality changes. So look on the screen and take a look. Oh, I thought it was like a, okay. Yeah, take it out. Now read the front. You may not have my eyes or smile, but from the first moment you had my heart. Love, Daddy. Now you have my last name. We filed all the paperwork so that you're going to be power like Daddy. Daddy's going to adopt you. <laughs> for the adoption. <laughs> really? Yep. You're lying. Today's your day. <laughs> Can we go Is that okay? Right now? What do you think, Skyler? Oh. <laughs> 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 Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. I just didn't know it was right now. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't want you to know. <laughs> Don't roll the paper. Oh, you can run the paper. Picture frame? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes! Congratulations, last one. What is that? Last picture frame. Read it. <laughs> can you read it? 
Yeah. Out loud? Who's cutting the onions? You know, why do those video clips uh, touch our hearts so much? For many reasons. But one is, I believe that it gives us a sense of joy, and here's why. Because it's not that for these kids, they're not going to face pain or disappointment or loss moving forward. They are. But where the reality changes completely is, they'll never face those realities alone. They'll have a family. They'll have a father. In the same way, when we come home to God the Father, it's not that suddenly life becomes perfect. It's not that we won't experience uh, the trials of life. It's not that we won't experience temptation where we feel the urge to compete and, better, and you know, be selfish. And No, we will experience those things, and we're going to have to struggle with that. But where reality alters completely is that we will never experience or walk through those things alone ever again. Because the Father calls you his own. He says, you're mine. And the resurrection brings us home to the Father. Now I realize there may be someone in this room and and you love and there's something in your heart where you're like, "I, I know everything that you're saying is true. I can't deny it. But there's a part of you where you think it's true, but it's not for me. Because you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. And, and if people knew, they would, they, they would run away because there's so much brokenness and there's so much guilt, so much regret. You have no idea. And, and I can sympathize with that sentiment. But I wonder if that sentiment doesn't see how powerful the resurrection is, but also how profoundly deep the Father's heart is. You know, there's a story that I think demonstrates the heart of of God the Father, and I'll close with this story. But, you know, last year sometime, uh, the late great evangelist, Billy Graham, uh, he passed away and he went home to be with Jesus. And a month after his death, uh, there was a funeral service that was televised at Billy Graham uh, Library in North Carolina. And it was, uh, many important people were there, and all of his children went up and shared stories about him. But there was one testimony that was shared by one of his children, one of his daughters, Anne Graham. That's what went viral. See, for Anne Graham, uh, she, after being married for 18 years, her husband was unfaithful, and so her marriage ended. Then in a whirlwind event against her parents' wishes, she actually quickly got married to somebody else, and then she recounts that within 24 hours, she knew she had made a mistake. And so being fearful for her own well-being, she actually just fled. And not knowing where to go, she decided to go back home to mom and dad. Now, those circumstances are already tough as it is. But when Billy Graham is your dad, there's just a little bit of pressure that you're going to feel. But here's what she shared. Take a look with me on the screen. I wanted to run and hide, but I could not. I had nowhere else to go. I could not undo my mistake. I knew I had to face it. I felt unworthy to go home, but I needed my parents. Questions whirled in my mind. What was I going to say to daddy? What was I going to say to mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? We're, We're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. 
Many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway and my father was standing there waiting for me. My father, who had every reason to rebuke me, he wrapped his strong arms around me, pulled me into a warm embrace and he greeted me with these simple words, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. My father's embrace at that moment was one of the most profound gestures of acceptance I have ever experienced. To be utterly broken and still accepted, to feel ugly and yet be loved, to feel like an outcast and still be welcomed. I marveled at the contrast between my heart full of shame and regret, but my father's heart so full of love. And listen to this. My father, he was not God, but he showed me what God is like that day. His one act of grace, it changed my life and informed me who I am. I am so grateful God accepts me as I am, hurting, wounded, broken. I'm glad he chooses me to be part of his family regardless of my past mistakes and sins. He wants me. He cares about me. His arms are open to me at all times. Even when I'm in the ruins, God stands watching the road, eager for me to come to him. God doesn't stop uh, at ruin. It's where he begins. God does not hold in his hand a list of my failures. He's waiting to be with me. He is waiting to embrace me and welcome me home. And that invitation is open for you. And all this is true because of the resurrection because the resurrection brings us home to the Father. So if you're here this morning, and you, know, you don't know much about the Christian faith, you don't even know if you'd identify yourself as a Christian, but there's something in your heart where you think, I know this is what I've been created for, and, and I'm exhausted, I am tired, and I don't even have all the right words, I don't even know how to pray, but I wanna come back home to the Father. Will you do so? Will you say, God, I'm yours, I'm yours. And we just talk to someone here today. If you are here and you call yourself a Christian, you have placed your trust in Jesus, will you rejoice? The adoption papers have been signed, amen? And so you can praise God and rejoice because this is our new reality. It is a resurrection reality. Happy Easter, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you so much for sending your son. We were spiritually homeless. We were fatherless. And yet you did not leave us as orphans. No, you pursued us. You chased after us through your son. And so Jesus, we thank you for dying for our sins on Good Friday, but rising again on happy Easter so that we can truly call it. Uh, we can say happy Easter to one another. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 